Wow. To God be the glory. Amen? Amen. What a beautiful day to be here together at Calvary Monument Bible Church. I welcome you here, uh, those that are in the building and those that are with us online today. It is great to be able to worship together and enjoy fellowship with one another. Uh, what a beautiful time of year, beautiful morning to wake up today, to see the sun, uh, to drive. The sun's coming up a little earlier now. Uh, many of us appreciate that. I like having that sun up nice and early. It's just a beautiful drive over here today. We do have a memory verse for the month of January, February, sorry, the month of February. Here we are already, halfway through it, hard to believe. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, we'll say it together. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. 1 Corinthians fifteen ten. Uh, you know, this is not the only place that I forget to say the call verse at the end of the, of the uh, reciting of the verse. I get the opportunity every once in a while to teach at a Bible Adventures at Quarterville Elementary School. And I was there uh, this week, and we have a memory verse that we do together each month. And I went through the memory verse with them and went right into the lesson, and the kids just kept on going with the call verse. Uh, said, I do that here on Sunday morning sometimes, too. When I was growing up, uh, I used to run around town. I had a group of friends, and uh, we had a lot of fun together. A lot of, a lot of those guys were uh, brothers in Christ, and we traveled all over the county uh, pretty much uh, all the time. We'd jump in trucks together and drive around. We'd go to Taco Bell like 12 in the morning uh, and get tacos. Uh, we'd go to Bible conferences together and all kinds of different things. And most of the guys that made up our group were a really kind of uh, positive outlook, kind of high energy. The glass is always half full, you know, kind of guys. We tend to align ourselves with people who share some of the same characteristics that we do, and, and that's kind of the way I'm wired. But there was one friend in our group, and I think all of us have a friend like this. He was the Eeyore of the group. And we all, we all know the Eeyore, the, the one that, you know, somebody could get up on stage and could just give all kinds of great and wonderful news, and on the way out, they're the ones saying, yeah, but what's going to happen with this and this and this and this? And, and I had a friend, uh, he was just like that. And we would be having all kinds of fun. I remember one night, all the guys were at the house. We were having a good time. Uh, all the guys thought we were having fun. And he got upset about something somebody said or did. I don't even remember what it was anymore. And he just looked at the group and he said, I'm sleeping out in my car. And, and he got up and left and he went out and slept out in his car that night. Woke up the next morning. There he was in his car. Um, and, and, you know, that was just his nature and his makeup, the way he was kind of wired. And maybe some of you know a person just like that. We may identify them uh, as the doubters, uh, maybe as the Eeyores, as Captain Grumpy Pants, I don't know, uh, whatever title uh, we want to give them, but, but we all may know someone uh, who's in that boat. Well, Paul, in our study today, he is going to turn his attention uh, towards these kinds of folks 
who are existing in the church in Corinth. Now, we're drawing to an end of our study in 1 Corinthians, and last week we broke into chapter 15, and we found ourselves really reinvigorated by Paul's powerful presentation of the gospel message. And we found that, that it's a message that really, as a church and as a faith community, we need to be regularly reminded of. It's one that we should be in the habit of rehearsing together. It's a message that forms and renovates our community. It aligns and orders us according to God's purposes. And it's also a message that is wholly dependent on the historical fact of a physical, physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, our Messiah. But for Paul, and for us who are here today, not all will believe or receive this message as mind-renewing and life-transforming news. So, what do we do with the doubters? How do we handle those who simply won't believe or will not receive the good news? Even those who remain present in our corporate or physical gathering spaces. Paul's words in our text today uh, may be a model for us, an example of how we might walk alongside someone who does not believe or accept the message of the gospel. And Paul's approach, I believe, is helpful, but I, I want to warn you before we dive in today, the content and the way he delivers the material uh, it's a bit difficult for us to consider. Today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, uh, whether they're, they're books or on your devices, you want to go ahead and turn there. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 19 today. And Paul is going to talk with the doubters, both in his midst and in our midst. And he's going to help us to all consider the troubling consequences that await us if Jesus is not risen from the dead. What a troubling and terrifying thing to consider. And this indeed is what Paul's going to turn his attention to today. And perhaps one of the most effective ways to answer doubt or disbelief is to walk with those experiencing it toward the terrifying consequences that could await their conclusions. Without a resurrected Jesus, friends, how do we deal with sin and death? What do we make of the ministry of the apostles and early church leaders? Why do we even gather and form as faith communities? What is the role of preaching? And in whom do we place our hope? What even is the content of our faith if Christ be not risen from the dead? And so today, Paul will draw us towards some difficult considerations, and we need to pray before we begin and thank God that we serve a resurrected Jesus. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into our text this morning. Father, we do thank you uh, for your word, even the pieces of it that may be a bit troubling for us. Today, Father, we approach your word, and in it, we're confronted with the troubling realities of what life would look like if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. And so, Father, we look at these realities today in light of the knowledge of the reality that we know He has. And we are incredibly thankful for that. 
One of the ways that you can motivate thankfulness uh, within us is to help us to see the way that life perhaps would have looked had Jesus not risen from the dead. And so we open uh, the text today, Lord, and we pray that you would guide and direct our time together. We pray that uh, through your word, we might understand how we could better walk along those that have not yet believed or accepted the good news of the gospel, the good news of a risen Messiah. We pray that Paul's approach would be something that may be able to inform our approach with those in our lives that have not yet believed. Lord, would you use your text to help us to grow in our love for you and our love for one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So these are the words of Paul to the people of God in Corinth. We're starting in verse 12 of chapter 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then... Those also who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Troubling, troubling words as we open our text today. Seven thoughts to consider if Jesus is not risen from the dead. And the first thought is this, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, death is is still victorious. And though Paul and the other church leaders were clear in their proclamations of a resurrected Jesus, it may come as a surprise to us in verse 12 to learn that there were some who had gathered that refused to believe in the resurrection of the dead. And Paul gives a consideration for those who refuse belief in the resurrected Lord in verse 13 where he says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Friends, without a victor over death, death is still victorious. What a wonderful truth we sang this morning. We know who wears the victor's crown. His name is Jesus. Amen? Amen. And Paul says this another way, down in verse 16. Look down there, he says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. But the question really has been begged in verse 12. How are there people gathered with the church who refuse to accept one of, if not the, core tenet of Christianity? And when we know more about the landscape of the ancient Greco-Roman environment, particularly as it's related to their thinking on end-of-life matters, it helps us to make sense of the situation and the circumstance that Paul was facing in the church. As one scholar has remarked in his research in this passage, he said this, quote, Christianity was born into a world 
where its central claim was known to be false. Many believed the dead were non-existent. Outside Judaism, nobody believed in resurrection. In the Roman world, everybody knew dead people didn't and couldn't come back to bodily life. End quote. And we find clear evidence of this way of thinking existing in the Bible, in the book of Acts. You might remember in Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Athens. He's before the Areopagus, the however we say it. He's among some of the most respected schools of thinkers in his time. And in verse 18 of Acts 17, we find this account. Also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with Paul. And some were asking, what does this foolish babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. They said this because he was proclaiming the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Again, in verse 32 of the same chapter in Acts 17, it says this. Now, when they had heard about the resurrection from the dead, some began to scoff. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul left the Areopagus. And while we may expect that this refusal of the concept of resurrection would come from Gentiles living in Paul's day, what about the Jews? What about those who were followers of Judaism? It's important for us to consider this because as we think about the formation of the early church, the youngest churches ever to be formed in the world, we must remember that they were made up of both Gentile and Jewish background believers. What did the Jews who had gathered with the church think about the idea of a bodily resurrection from the dead? And the answer to this question would largely be dependent on which Jewish religious leaders one was most influenced by. Within Judaism, there was actually a division of thinking in this matter. So we know about two of the primary religious groups that were existing in Paul's time. There were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees did not believe in the possibility of a bodily resurrection. The Pharisees did believe that the resurrection was indeed a possibility with God. And again, we find evidence directing us towards the presence of this thinking in ancient Judaism in the Bible. In Acts chapter 23, once again, as we turn to the origins of the earliest church as presented in the book of Acts, this time Paul's standing before a religious council that was known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of all sorts of Jewish religious leaders. In Acts chapter 23, verses 6 to 8, here's the account. Then, when Paul noticed that part of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, he shouted out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I am on trial concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And when he said this, an argument broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Verse 8 For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection or angel or spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. 
So within the Corinthian church, all of these mindsets, no possibility of resurrection, possibility of resurrection, some from Gentile backgrounds, some from Jewish backgrounds, all were coming together as one cohesive body. And one way that Paul began to combat this rejection and unbelief in resurrection that existed in the church was through his ministry of preaching and writing about the truth. But here's the problem. If Christ be not raised, then what use is preaching? What use was Paul's preaching? What use is anyone else's preaching for that matter? If Christ be not raised, Paul says in verse 14 of chapter 15, look, look at how he says it again. Then our preaching is in vain. Resurrection was one of the, if not the primary theme of the early sermons that were being preached to the church. One of the primary components and pieces of the content that was forming what Paul was writing and teaching. We see this throughout the Bible. Galatians chapter 1, Paul, he says in, in chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him up from the dead and all those who are with me. There's resurrection. Romans chapter 1. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Romans chapter 6 verse 5. If we've been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in what? Resurrection. Over and over and over again. Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. This is Paul again, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Theme, right? Resurrection. Major theme. 2 Timothy, Paul's writing to one of his apprentices. Somebody that he is mentoring, a young man named Timothy who's pastoring a church and he's telling him to watch out for these people that are coming in and they're corrupting the truth and they're saying that the resurrection of Christ or the resurrection of the dead has already happened, right? And, and so he's oftentimes talking about this reality of the resurrection, Jesus being raised from the dead and believers being united with him in resurrection, Resurrection marked the preaching and the writing ministry of Paul and the early church leaders. And so it follows that if, if friends, if what I'm getting up here, if what the pastors in this world are getting up here and proclaiming, if what Paul was getting up and proclaiming uh, to his people, if that's all in vain, then what follows all of it is also in vain. And Paul deals with this. Right in our text, he says, without a resurrected Jesus, both the ministry and the message of the early church leaders was fraudulent. They found themselves guilty of a charge of misrepresenting God. Look at verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. By the way, if this is a difficult message for you today, believe me, I labored through this this week. I said to my wife multiple times, you don't get into ministry to preach about a Lord that hasn't 
been risen from the dead. <laughs> In fact, it's quite the opposite. So this is hard. This is difficult. But this is how Paul's confronting the doubters that were existing in the church. He's walking them towards the end of the logical conclusion of their thoughts and arguments. It's interesting that the word that Paul uses here to describe and uh, this misrepresentation of God, the word in Greek is actually pseudo-martyr. Pseudo-martyr. We know the word pseudo, that means what? Fake, right? And we know the word martyr, right? Someone who's killed for their belief, particularly their belief in Christ. Well, this word misrepresentation means pseudo-martyr. And it's used only one other time in all of the New Testament. And we might not be too surprised to find out where exactly it was used. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, you remember Jesus is brought before, uh, shock of all shock, the Sanhedrin. And it's there at the Sanhedrin where he's going to be indicted and condemned as a blasphemer. The penalty of which was death. But as we reflect on this account in Matthew chapter 26, we remember there was a problem, wasn't there? There weren't any real witnesses available to identify how and when that Jesus had been guilty of blasphemy. So jump down with me to verse 57. We're going to look at verse 57 through 60a, the one other place in the New Testament where this word is used, a pseudo-martyr. Starting in verse 57, Now the ones who had arrested Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, in whose house the experts in the law and the elders had gathered. But Peter was following him from a distance all the way to the high priest's courtyard. After going in, he sat with the guard to see the outcome. The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were trying to find false testimony against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find anything, though many pseudo-martyrs came forward. Many who were willing to misrepresent and mischaracterize the words and the testimony and the ministry of Jesus. Now, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is what Paul's saying about himself and the other apostles and early church leaders. If Christ be not raised, then they themselves are false witnesses. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus, the apostles and early church leaders who had proclaimed that God had raised Jesus from the dead were guilty of misrepresenting or bearing false witness against God if Jesus had not risen. And the implications here, church, are massive. If Jesus is not risen, it, it invalidates everything that we do. It invalidates everything the early apostles and church leaders did. It makes it void, meaningless. Why did they do what they did? Because they knew of the fact of the literal and physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. And it's this resurrection, friends, that's been more scrutinized and more challenged than perhaps any event in the history of the world. But it's also an event for which the early church leaders were willing to lay down their own lives 
for. Think of what this message cost those who broadly and boldly proclaimed it. Many of the disciples and the early church leaders were actually martyred for their faith. They died because they wouldn't renounce that which they knew to be true because they had seen the risen Lord with their own eyes. Remember the account? One of the most striking and prolific accounts of Jesus' appearances after his resurrection was with Thomas. What was Thomas's problem? What was his problem? He was a doubter. You remember Jesus comes into that room. He says, take a look at me. What does he say? Touch. Touch. Literal. Physical. Bodily. Resurrection. And listen to what these early church leaders and apostles were willing to lay down and sacrifice to proclaim and to get this message out. Peter was crucified in Rome upside down. Andrew, who was Peter's brother, also was crucified. Now, if this was something that was just concocted or made up, Or some kind of story or fairy tale. I would say that once the first two guys were crucified, everyone else would say, okay, these people are serious. We're out. That's not what happened. James, the son of Zebedee, was executed by Herod Agrippa. Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, was crucified in Turkey. Bartholomew was beheaded after preaching the gospel in India. Thomas was speared to death. In India, Matthew, the disciple of Jesus, was killed in Ethiopia. James, the son of Alphaeus, many believe, was crucified in Egypt. Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot were killed in what we know today as modern Iran. And Matthias, the disciple who was chosen to replace Judas, is believed to have been stoned to death. Think about that. And we know the account of Stephen and many others. This is just a few examples. History could probably unpack several hundreds of martyrs for the cause of a risen Messiah. Why would anyone give up their lives for a message that simply wasn't true? Friends, we must conclude that those who preached this message were motivated by their experience with the crucified, then resurrected Messiah, Jesus. And so what Paul does again is follow this logic right on through in his writing here. What logically follows a discredited apostolic ministry would be the empty faith existing in the churches which they planted. If the message and ministry of Paul and the early church leaders was invalid and invalidated, then so too is ours today. And Paul says this in two different ways in his text. Take a look at verse 14, the end of verse 14, and then let's jump and look at the beginning of verse 17. At the end of verse 14, he says this, Your faith, if my preaching is in vain, your faith is also in vain. Then in, chapter, then in verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Now today, just think about today, here at Calvary Monument Bible Church, 
We've done all of this and gathered here in this building. And following service today, we're going to enjoy a family life hour. And at that family life hour, we are going to sing together of God's mercies. We're going to receive new members. We're going to share about the great work that God's doing in our church. We're going to talk about upcoming opportunities for us to unite in prayer for our neighbors. We're going to give an update on an upcoming opportunity to engage the community with the gospel. We're going to reflect on the time of spiritual growth and discipleship that our students enjoyed on the winter retreat. We're going to celebrate Awana and the other children's ministries that take place here in our congregation. We're going to share about our upcoming global outreach conference we're going to baptize five young believers who are part of our faith community we're going to sing about standing on God's promises now I ask you the question if Christ be not raised from the dead why are we doing any of it if Christ be not raised friends that's all meaningless we know We serve a risen Lord. This is not an effort in futility. I'll tell you about an effort in futility. You want to know an effort in futility? In our house, in the top floor of our house, there's a bathroom that six boys share. (laughs) You want to know an effort in futility? Clean that bathroom. That is an effort in futility. Because no sooner is that thing clean, then you can't even walk by it again. Look in it and just see uh, how it looks. That, that's an effort in futility. You know, you do all that work and uh, there's, there's going to be some kind of blessing for you, babe, in heaven. Uh, <laughs> she does all that and all that stink and stain Somehow, just, it, 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 it's there. It's still there. And the reality for us is this, that we could do a lot of great and spiritually looking and sounding things, but without a resurrected Messiah, there's a consequence. The stink and the stain of sin and death still exists. Look at how Paul says this in the second part of verse 17. He says, Your faith is futile, and what? You are still in your sins. What a terrifying and troubling thought. Sin still reigns and is unaccounted for if Christ be not risen. During Paul's ministry, he wrote a letter to this blossoming faith community in the Roman city, of Ephesus. And in this particular letter that he was writing, Paul in it paints this vivid picture of the life of one who is still dead in their trespasses and sins. And he does this in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says this. I'm going to just start uh, in verse 2. You were dead in your offenses and sins, in which you formerly lived according to this world's present path, according to the ruler of the domain of the air, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us formerly lived out our lives in the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. 
Sounds pretty hopeless. He doesn't stop there. He goes further in verses 11 and 12. Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision that is performed on the body by human hands, that you were at that time without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants and promises, listen to this, having no hope and without God in the world. Sound troubling? Troubling. If Christ be not raised, that's the reality that still exists for all of us who are gathered here today. Apart from a resurrected Messiah, we are still the ones accountable for our sins, declared guilty We stand in divine condemnation and judgment. God's wrath remains upon us. That is a troubling, troubling thought. But there's something that's even more saddening and troubling as we consider that. If Christ be not raised, then all the brothers and sisters in Christ, all the Christians who have died before us, are lost. And this is a terrible thought for the living to consider, but it's utterly hopeless for those to whom Paul has identified as those who have fallen asleep. Look at verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now, Paul's used this term before, fallen asleep, and he typically uses it as this type of hopeful euphemism because it alludes to the reality that with a resurrected Lord, those who die believing in him will awaken to their majestic and eternal reality in heaven. One we're going to talk about in just a bit, I promise, friends. It gets more hopeful. Hang in there. I promise. It does. But here... Paul's moved us to this place of utter hopelessness. Apart from a risen Lord, death reigns, preaching and faith are empty, sin is unaccounted for, and what remains are a people that Paul identifies in verse 19, of all people the most to be pitied. And and I've shared before, uh, all week, this text just, just nagged at me. I'd walk into the office, usually by Thursday it's done, and I'm just reviewing and sharpening it up, and Thursday I walked in the office, I looked at Edie, and I said, I I just can't write this sermon. It just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right talking about this and considering these things together with you. We don't get into ministry to question, to deliberate about, or even doubt the reality of a resurrected Messiah. We know the hopelessness and the futility that comes on the other end of that. Yet, yet, here is a reality for us to consider. Many of us in this room or watching online will come face to face this week with someone who rejects this marvelous and life-changing truth. Jesus is risen, but there are some living today who have not believed it and they need to hear this message and we want to be ready to know how to give an answer in 
in the resurrected Messiah, we have, as believers, a solution to the world's two greatest problems, sin and death. The solution is Jesus. Death has died. Sin has been defeated. Jesus wears the victor's crown. In the resurrected Messiah, we have both the content of our message and the substance of our faith. His life gives us purpose and meaning. His faithfulness fuels our faith. Life has a greater purpose and meaning, and we live with abundant hope because of Jesus' victory over death. Friends, in the resurrected Messiah, we have, we hold eternal hope for the future. Heaven sits before us. Listen to the beautiful words of Peter 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. This is a beautiful reality awaiting all who believe. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, And unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now listen to what he concludes. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Friends, we face various trials here on earth. Some days are hard. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Isn't that beautiful and hopeful for those who have believed? Resurrection to eternal future and life in heaven with God is before us. Friends, we face death without needing to be pitied because Jesus has secured our eternal, unfading, imperishable, and undefiled inheritance in heaven. It's kept where moth and rust cannot corrupt or destroy. Amen? Amen. It is there, and it's kept there and secured there because of the reality of a resurrected Lord. All of this, is what we hope in, all of it. And there will be one this week, maybe even in your home, maybe across the street, maybe a neighbor, maybe at your job, maybe in your school, there will be one, maybe more than one, who will look at the way that you live and will come to you and say, how can you live with such hope in a world that feels so hopeless? How do you do it? 
How can you live with such peace in this time of great turmoil and unsettledness? How can you have such comfort in the face of this difficult loss that you've experienced? How are you able to walk through this season of adversity and, and all the obstacles that you're facing with such confidence? What are you hoping in? Friends, we have seven here of 10,000 things to be hoping in. Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen. The things that we talk about that pertain to Jesus matter. The things that we do in this life that pertain to Jesus matter. All of it matters. We've been given purpose and hope and a place and a position with Christ because we serve a risen Lord. Perhaps, friends, perhaps what we can do when that moment comes, and I pray for each one of you, it does come. I pray that someone looks at the content and the quality of your life and wants to know how you can live this way in this world. When that time comes, perhaps we can turn that question back towards the one who has not yet believed in the resurrected Lord, and we can simply ask this, what are you hoping in? What are you hoping in? A few years ago, I was talking to a mentor of mine. He went out to dinner in Chicago, and he was sitting at the table, and at his table, there was a very successful and wealthy businessman. He did not know Jesus. So that evening, he thought he was going to take it on himself while he was having dinner with his children to witness to this successful businessman that did not know Jesus. That was the question that he asked that businessman. That man who was a millionaire, I don't know how many times over, who had everything that life could ever provide. And he looked at him, my mentor looked at him, and he said, but what are you hoping in? And that man got saved because of that question. Because the reality is, church, we have everything to hope for because of Jesus. Everything. Amen? Without Jesus, there is no hope. No hope. And here is what I am hoping in, and I hope it's what you are hoping in too. Take a look ahead. Sometimes we get the peak, right? Take a look ahead at verse 20. We'll get into this next week. It'll be much more hope-filled, I promise. Just the first part of that line in verse 20. What does Paul say? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Good news, friends. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. We serve a risen Savior and I would tell you today, if you're here in this building, if you're watching with us online, today is the day to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. You're hearing the gospel. Do not wait. Do it today. In fact, right now, I'm going to pray. We're going to pray. And then we're going to conclude our message. Before we even get into the question, we're going to pray because I want to give the opportunity for someone right now who feels hopeless, 
who doesn't know what they're hoping in, who looks at their life and says, I have nothing to hope in. I want to give you the opportunity right now, if you hear that and you feel hopeless, to turn your life over to Jesus, to come unto Him, to confess your sins, to acknowledge your great need for Him, to turn, to repent, and to find your salvation right now, Sunday morning, right here. Let's pray. Father, we do have much to hope in and to be hopeful for. Your Son, Jesus, is risen from the dead. He solved our greatest problems of sin and death. We can live with great hope in this world today and we can live with great hope for the future because of the power of your resurrected son, Jesus. Lord, there may be some today who were present here in this building or with us online that have never heard this message, have never felt or grabbed hold of this hope before. They are hopeless living by their own effort, by their own strength, feeling the stress and the strain and the anxiety of a life that they cannot keep up with, feeling burdened with guilt and shame, holding things that they do not need to hold. Lord, right now is the moment that they need to give it to you. And Father, we know that your son Jesus stands ready to receive them. So right now, Lord, if there are any that are listening that are in the sound of my voice, that have never come to you, that have not yet found you, that do not yet know that their hope can be secured in you, I pray right now that they would follow along in this prayer. Father, today, I recognize my great need for Jesus. Today, Lord, I know that I have a terrible problem with sin. And I face a death that I cannot account for. But I believe today, right now, that your son Jesus has covered my sins. And has died the death that I deserved. And I believe, Lord. I believe on him as my Lord. That you raised him from the dead. That he has conquered death. And I place my trust in him. Lord, I come to you today for salvation. Would you come into my heart and my mind? Would you dwell with me? Would you form me into the image of your son, Jesus? I want to live in the same manner that he lived. Today, Lord, I believe this. I confess it. And I turn my life over to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. I want to encourage you, if you prayed that prayer today, whether in this building, whether at home, uh, whether you're listening three or four months from now online and you prayed that prayer, reach out and tell someone that you know loves Jesus that you prayed that prayer today, that today was the day that you made Jesus your Lord and your Savior and you came to him. So we look at this text today and we wonder... How might we live as disciples of Jesus and function together as his church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world? We've asked that question for almost every sermon that we've had together in this series. And I would say in light of our text this morning, we might conclude this. With bold confidence in our ever faithful God, we hold on to the truth of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, living in light of Messiah's victory over death, proclaiming the filled-up truth of our life-giving faith, communing 
as a forgiven people filled with gratitude and hope for our common eternal destiny. Now we're going to sing about that hope this morning before we conclude because we have a risen hope. Team, would you come and would you lead us in singing about our risen living hope?